You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, amen. Um, Well, my name is Matt Younger, and if we don't know one another, I'd love the privilege to get to know you. I'm one of the pastors here on staff and would love for you to turn to John 1, verse 14, the verse that we already read together this morning, John 1, 14. You know, um, I was thinking this week about the idea that when the most epic person or thing enters the room unbeknownst to you, it changes you, it can actually change you. And so I had a, a good recollection uh, of second grade for me. I have a second grade son, and so uh, this was an easy, vicarious thing. And I remember in second grade, this would have been Austin Elementary in Coppell, Texas, in 1991, just sitting there minding my own business, playing with blocks or something. And uh, Troy Aikman walked into our classroom. He really did. Uh, This was before three Super Bowls, uh, a way to spend a glorious childhood and then an adult lament. Um, This is before he was in the Hall of Fame as a quarterback. Uh, This is before he was the lead broadcaster on Fox. Uh, Back then in 1991, he was just a young, promising quarterback from UCLA, first-round draft pick, uh, sporting an achy-breaky mullet uh, because it was very much in style. And uh, he walked into my second-grade class, and uh, the wow factor was through the roof. And uh, he really did, not making this up. Uh, Sat down, ate pizza with us, hung out with us. Uh, It was pretty epic. And uh, to the point where I don't remember what I told my mom when I got home, but I imagine I told her uh, that Troy Aikman and all of his glory came to us. Because again, uh, when something or someone epic walks into your life, it changes you. And don't think for a second that I don't still look at Troy Aikman in the same way with some kind of weird tinge. I don't know, knowing that uh, as a little boy, uh, he became solidified himself as my hero bar none. I think that John is going with a similar idea here um, in his gospel. Uh, His gospel is a rhetorical persuasive letter that he's writing to persuade people to see Christ as who he is. Uh, And what I have the privilege to do this morning, all of scripture is sacred and God-breathed and profitable, But I have the privilege and we have the privilege to actually live in some words that have changed the history of ideas. Um, We enter like the holy ground of epic thought in this passage this morning that I'll read again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is what John is saying, the logos He became a man. We saw it. We saw it all. He was glorious, gracious, and true. Let me pray for us really quickly. Father, I pray that you would make yourself clear in the life of sending Jesus Christ and all he means for us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we have to stop with the first two words used, the word, right? Because there are major implications to what's going on with 
halagos, the word. Um, it's going to actually have two very different meanings to two groups of people. Some of you know this. Uh, from a Jewish perspective, for him to, and he's primarily writing to that audience, John is using a word that's going to make their ears perk up. They're all going to understand the currency and the context of him using the word, the word. What do I mean? The obvious overtones to the creation story are striking in the beginning of the passage. Beginning, creation, in the beginning, light and darkness, all the things that we see in verses one through four. Again, that there's creation. And then like Psalm 33, six says this, that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And Genesis one, uh, verse three, six, nine, what you see there <clears throat> is that God is simply speaking and by speaking, his powerful word creates, okay? And then you can even go further with the idea, the concept of the word to the prophets, um, like that when God speaks the word to uh, Jeremiah or Ezekiel or whoever, this is God's word. They would have understood this to be the direct words from God. And it would have been very clear to a Jewish audience that this man is God speaking. But of course, we know that John will go even further and say, this is not just God speaking, um, this is God himself. And that's why you get into the most significant language of John 1, 1, that the word was with God and the word was God. And so John's making an argument to a Jewish audience that this is a continuation of the voice of God himself, the very presentation of God in our midst. But there's this whole other thing that's happening in this passage that we can't miss. And that's the Greek perspective. I should say the Stoic perspective. When you think about a Stoic, when you hear that word, what comes to mind? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you think about? Do you think like a, a super serious person with no emotions? I mean, it'd be, it'd be like the right way to describe a Stoic person. Uh, and that kind of description actually owes its heritage to Stoicism as a kind of pervasive Greek thought in the first century where they also patterned their lives around the word. The Greek word logos, a double meaning, if you will, was highly significant to their worldview. So what did a Stoic believe? A Stoic believed this, according to one person, that everything around us operates according to a web of cause and effect, resulting in a rational structure of the universe that they called the Logos. And I love this about Stoics. Um, they're not idealist, not at all. Um, millennials and Gen Z, of which I'm uh, an old millennial, we have uh, crowded the marketplace with idealism, right? In every direction. The Stoics were allergic to idealism. They were not ideal makers. They were uh, deal with the real world as it is and get over it kind of people. They said, things are going to happen outside of your control. Don't dabble. In the midst of all the hard things, pursue self-improvement. Do the best you can. That was stoic thought pervasive in this context. But who is God? That's a huge question. God, well, I should say the universe is a rational impersonal cosmic order. Uh, things happen outside of our control. And when we die, we become part of the Logos, but the Logos is not personal. The universe will act unanimous, I'm sorry, anonymously, 
with no personal regard for you or for me. Do what you can with what you have, but the Logos certainly is not looking out for you the way I'm looking out for my second grade son. We don't operate with the universe that way. That was what they believed. Still pervasive today. Uh, that's um, kind of the foundation of, uh, of Buddhist thought today. Um, and so it's still a pervasive worldview. And so John's going to write something that, um, without exaggeration, is earth-shattering to the history of ideas. And he's going to say this, that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And of course, to a Jewish perspective, they're going to say, no, 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 that's blasphemy. Absolutely no chance. Don't you remember the story of God appearing to Moses on the mountain? You cannot see his face. That man is not God, and he's especially not God because he was cursed as a criminal. And how shameful a story could that be if that was actually some kind of version of Yahweh, representation of his character in the flesh. No chance, non-starter, not going there. But to a Greek perspective, it was equally silly. It was foolish because this is what John is effectively saying to a Stoic. He's saying, um, God um, is not an impersonal force of which you have no relationship, but actually a human being sent by the Father to show us that being human means that we're created for love by a God who cares, by a God who sees us, and by a God who knows. And friends, this was nothing short of revolutionary. So much so that when Marcus Aurelius, yes, from Gladiator, that guy, uh, is uh, emperor in the second century, um, kind of the high point of Roman persecution of Christians, there is a young man named Justin, later known to be Justin Martyr, who is one of the first fathers of the church, who is a former Stoic, who is a Christian convert, and who is preaching this message. And he is a uh, horrible annoyance to the Roman Empire. And so he gets in an argument with a guy named Crescens. And under uh, the, uh, the leadership of Marcus Aurelius, Justin Martyr is put to death. Why? Because he was bringing about a revolution. <laughs> he was like taking Stoic thought on and saying, I'm sorry, the world is not an impersonal force, but um, I'm sorry, God is not an impersonal force who doesn't act or doesn't care or acts anonymously. No, God is actually a father and he relates to us as he relates to his children. And what that also meant is that Caesar is not Lord, Christ is. And so there's this nuisance of these young Christians that are disturbing the force, if you will, and they won't have it. And so Justin Martyr and many others are put to death because they had the courage to take on Stoic thought. Because Marcus Aurelius and his folks, his, uh, his, his crew, if you will, knew exactly what this Christian thought of who the word is represented. It represented something revolutionary, that Jesus is Lord. And so when you think about the implications of Jesus being among us, because it's really the focus of this morning. What does it mean for Jesus to be among us? There are multiple implications. One, that God is knowable. Like what is the, what is the idea that, that Jesus dwelled in the flesh, that he, that he dwelled in the flesh? What does that actually mean? It means that he's knowable. And this is staggering. So um, 
John's gonna say that we have seen his glory. You may know this, that when John writes that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's using a word, it's the exact word that you're gonna find in Exodus about the tabernacle, about pitching a tent. What John is literally saying here is that the word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us. And that's gonna have a direct recognizable tie to the Exodus story from a Jewish perspective, that he tabernacled, that he pitched his tent. What do I mean, Exodus 33? Moses is sitting outside in his tent, and what what Scripture says is that Moses would go to uh, his tent, and there he would speak with the Lord. He would meet with God as a man does a friend. And Exodus 33 says this, Moses begs God, now show me your glory. And then the Lord replies, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. And so John, do not miss this, is hearkening back to the most dramatic story in the Old Testament about the presence of God expressly manifesting in front of somebody And now he's directing this presence to this man, the Logos, Jesus Christ. And a Jewish person would have absolutely understood what he was saying. That, so think about from a a Jewish perspective, it's the same God who met with us and showed us his glory as we tabernacled out there, has now tabernacled among us and is showing us his glory today. And from a Greek perspective, This is also staggering because what John is saying is that, no, no, God is not absent and abstract, but he's present and he's defined. And to everybody, this is what he's saying. Do you know how God corresponds with his people? You know what the ruling metaphor is now? As a father does to his children. That's the way God interacts with us. As a father does to his children. How much more? So like, think about the life of Christ. Christ comes into the world with an empirical quality, with five senses, and he's seen and experienced empirically as well. He spoke words, he was physical, he shared meals. John will say in verse 18, Jesus has made known to him, made known him who we cannot see. And so the point here, the first point, the staggering point, maybe not to us, but most certainly in the first century, is that God is actually knowable. We can know him. The second thing is that God cares about our space and time. Another implication of Jesus being among us, uh, there's a Greek philosopher named Luke Ferry, lives in Paris, and he wrote a fascinating book called A Brief History of Thought, which is just a kind of a survey, really readable, of major worldviews throughout time. And what's interesting about him is because he's not a Christian and because he doesn't have the Christian baggage that so many of us have, Um, he's able to actually speak of Christianity more favorably. And just to go, these are all of kind of the things that you get from Christianity. And one of the things that he talks about is that the Imago Dei, the the idea that all of us are created in the the image of God and worth being treated that way, um, not only did that squarely find itself in the person and work of Jesus, meaning that worldview wasn't really pervasive prior to Jesus. Our precursor for Western democracy is rooted in Christ itself. What he's saying is that civil liberties and civil rights don't exist without the message of Christ dignifying and seeing 
every person made in the image of God. That was revolutionary thought for the time. And yet Jesus brings that out because my point is that he cares about our space and time. By Jesus entering time, Jesus shows that he actually cares about our day-to-day. Guys, think about it. Our bodies, if you want, if you want a, a point of meditation for today, our bodies housed God himself. Think about that. Your eyes, your nose, shoulders, everything else. God himself chose to dwell in our space and time. And then you think about the way Jesus interacted. Like he shows up to a party and there's not enough wine and he cares enough about wine being at a party that he makes it for people. He sees large groups who are hungry, like they're hungry. I got hangry yesterday. I had a late party. There was like a two hour gap. I was hangry. And like Jesus understood that. Like he, he fed large groups of people. Like he strengthened relationship between mother and son. Like that was meaningful for him, for a mom and a son to have relationship. He cared for the sick. Like people who were sick, he actually entered in and cared. Like people who were marginalized, he saw them. In our day-to-day, our week-to-week, our need for sleep, our need for food, Jesus enters into that and says, I actually care about it, which is staggering. And then the third thing, the implication of Jesus being among us. God dignifies our limitations and our vulnerabilities. The word becoming flesh means that Jesus volunteers for suffering. He becomes weak by his own volition, his own choice. He becomes weak. Like our struggles, let's be honest in here, our real life struggles were known to him. Not as some distant philosopher, but as an embodied human. You ever been misunderstood? He has. You ever been abandoned? He has. Betrayed? experienced overwhelming sadness and grief, been broke. He knew what, it, knew what it was like to be poor, have had people hate you. He knew that, tired, hungry. Like Jesus, Jesus he dignifies our limitations and our vulnerabilities. Like I just, and that's what's so profound when you think about Christ as our advocate. What he's effectively saying is, I know what they go through, not as some like disembodied philosopher, but as a human being who can say, I advocate for them as one of them. The hardest thing in your life right now is a pain point for which he holistically, completely understands and stands now in heaven not detached from you, but as one with you, because as a human being, he lived among us and he felt and feels the very things that we endure. And so as the word becomes flesh, he dignifies our limitations and our vulnerabilities. And then lastly, he shows that he can heal us and he can transform the future. So a stoic, again, what is a stoic gonna say? Hey, the logos doesn't see your problems. Get over it, who cares? Get over it and be tough. Make the most of it. Forge your character. What does Jesus do? Okay, so in uh, Mark 9, a woman who's been bleeding 
um, in the most embarrassing way for 12 years, 12 years, who's a social outcast, who has no recourse whatsoever, walks up to him. What does a Stoic do? Stoic does, I don't know, something's going on. Forge your character, can't explain it. What does Jesus do? Well, first of all, the woman comes to him and what does he do for her? He heals her. He heals her. You understand that, right? Like what Jesus shows is that we can actually bring our present pain to him and he will heal us. He will transform us. Like he doesn't say, hey, in that embarrassing thing that you're going through, let's just endure until uh, just kind of an unknown future where all of it will get sorted out. He says, no, actually bring those things to me now. And I wanna bring healing and transformation to your character which is just staggering. A Stoic's gonna say, hey, detach from your possessions and be content in your isolation. And what's Jesus gonna say? Hey, share my hope with everyone because anyone else, anyone who's humble enough to receive it will be with us into eternity. A Stoic's gonna say, hey, when the world ends, it all get, we all get caught up in the great abstract. And Jesus says, Jesus says when, um, when our suffering is over, you will be with me in a physical and resurrected world. Do you see the implications of Jesus among us? Do you understand why we sing these songs like a thrill of hope, the soul feels its worth, a weary world rejoices? Do you understand why he changes people? I, I had a conversation with uh, one of my son's friends. We went to a camp out and they were telling me the story of their adoption of um, their uh, fifth son, and uh, he is a special needs son, uh, special needs uh, little boy born in China and left abandoned on a field in an obscure part of China. And they heard about him. And so they got on a plane and they went there and they took a couple trains and cars, not really knowing where to go, found out where this village was, found this kid, went into an orphanage, saw this kid, surveyed everything he needed, which was drastic care and improvement, signed all the paperwork, met with the story, tried to patch his little life story together as best as he could. Who could his mom have been? Who was his dad? And they brought him home and he's now living in Dallas. And you go, why in the world do people do crazy things like that that would have been um, just fundamentally outside of the world of a Stoic to do something like that? And why in the world would that family go to China, step into vulnerability, step into risk, step into hardship, go to an unknown place? Why would they do that? Well, because the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the reality of Jesus being among us has profoundly changed their lives. And that's why they would do that. And that's why we are called to do that because he pitched his tent and he tabernacled among us and we saw his glory and, we, and he changed us. That's what John's saying. But what's so great about him? Like what's so great specifically about this man of glory who's sent from the father? Well, John's gonna say he's full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. What do we mean by this? Well, grace, it means that they experienced and so do we the unmerited and unconditional favor of God that he loved them because he loved them. That's what I try to teach my kids all the time, that grace is I love you because I love you and that he showed them their grace. And again, we see this going back to the Exodus story. 
as God meets with Moses and God says, the Lord, the Lord, or Moses says rather, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And John is saying, we saw his grace, but we also saw his truth. And what does it mean that Jesus was full of truth? It means that there were things that he said and he believed without compromise and without embarrassment. There were true North things that were bedrock foundational beliefs and principles to Jesus. And uh, what's so glorious about Christ is that he actually brings both grace and truth together in the most compelling way. Um, And he's not gonna favor one for the other. We see this even in the Old Testament, right? Where Ezekiel calls out the prophets who they're saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Do you know what the prophets are doing in the Old Testament? They're basically saying, all is grace, all is forgiven. There's no truth, there's no true north. Just receive perpetual mercy. And Jesus is gonna say, uh, through the, the Holy Spirit and the prophet Ezekiel, that is not of the Lord. I am not grace apart from truth. And yet Jesus is also not gonna fundamentally just be a truth guy. That's why in John 8, when another woman who's caught in the most embarrassing thing, caught in the act of adultery, is surrounded by a bunch of men ready to stone her because the law says that that is the proper thing. Jesus is gonna stand in her way as her advocate in front of those men and go, okay, you wanna talk about the law? You wanna talk about what the law says? Okay, well then whoever among you is without sin, you go throw the first stone. And so Jesus is not just a grace guy and he's not just a truth guy. The beauty of Christ is that he's both and the reality for us is that we need both because we are living in a day, it's been said before that, We're the first generation in human history that says that truth is uh, inside of us and fluid and not outside of us and fixed. And so the world is increasingly allergic to truth claims. Truth is now my emotions. Truth is what I feel. And don't mess with my truth because this is my truth. And the world's actually starting to poke at fun at that just a little bit. Um, I saw this in a Ted Lasso episode, which is an adult show. It's an adult show. And uh, Roy Kent, who's very much a stoic, um, comes in and he's trying to work out some of his love life problems. And he's talking to Ted and he says, well, I can't control my feelings. And then Ted says back to him sarcastically, then by all means, let them control you, right? And that's kind of the spirit of our age. Like, let's just be controlled by our emotions because I am what I feel. And for you to bring a truth upon me is offensive. And for me to even share my truth with you, I have to be really careful. And here's the thing. What's Jesus's response to that? Well, it would be one thing if in the gospels, he was just truth bombing all the time, like making people feel small as he held them to an impossible standard. But that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Jesus never shames us for not living up to his standard, but he never apologizes for the life that he lived truthfully for us. And that's really, really good news for us. And that means that we should be people that don't apologize for the truth that we live either, but also live incredibly graciously. And you know where healing begins? Like if you're trying to experience healing, like healing begins when we accept the offer of his grace and we live towards his truth. And we remember those two things go together. And when they go together, they change us, they change 
communities and they change history is we're called to embody grace and truth together. That is the work of the Holy Spirit today. That is the message, the ongoing building of the kingdom in the New Testament. And it's what my grandpa did for me when I was a senior in high school. Um, I was leaving Coppell High School as my senior year. And you know how chaotic uh, leaving high school parking lots is. It's like World War III stuff. And um, I kind of pull out, try to get in front of this guy. And he, I'm a senior, he's a sophomore. So I guess I tried to, you know, big dog him or whatever. Um, and uh, he had the right of way, but I didn't want to give him the right of way. And so I, uh, he has a Mustang, I have a F-150 and I've come here and I, I bumped his car and scratched it on his part and my part. And so his dad calls us and um, I was in, in many ways raised by a single mom and uh, what mom always had uh, in her back pocket was her trump card. And that's, well, you're going to have to talk to your grandpa about that. And so my grandpa was, uh, what is my hero, passed away eight years ago. And so I remember uh, sitting down with him and trying to kind of fumble my way through this story, how it was kind of maybe not my fault and maybe more his fault or that it was like super gray. And so I'm fumbling my way through the story and he stops me uh, mid-story, and he looks at me dead in the eyes. He says, uh, I'm not interested in hearing the rest of it. He said, you're going to man up. You're going to take responsibility. This is your fault, and you're going to own it. And, uh, and that was settled, and that was the end of it. Uh, and then he pulls out his checkbook um, and writes me a $1,000 check for the deductible that I certainly didn't have that I owed him. And uh, I left my grandpa's house that afternoon, um, walking with a little limp because of the truth bomb, if you will, but holding grace in my hand with the check that I didn't deserve and that I didn't earn, but that he had graciously given to me. And what happens is when we become people of grace and truth and when we embody the life of, our Christ, of, of Christ, it actually changes us too. And it changes us and it changes communities and it changes history Troy Aikman, um, unbeknownst to me, in second grade, he came into my class and he probably made um, a bunch of little second graders Troy Aikman fans for life. But at a cosmic level, the second person of the Trinity, unbeknownst to all of us, pitched his tent among us. What does that mean? It means that everything's changed. It means that God is knowable. It means he cares about space and time. It means he dignifies our limitations and vulnerabilities, and it means that he promises that he can heal us and transform our future. My friends, Jesus has entered into the world. He is glorious, he is gracious, and he is true. And I hope that you can receive the joy of his life this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word and for its clarity and for its integrity. I thank you that Jesus has entered into um, our world and that Jesus has lived his life for us and that Jesus changes everything. And so thank you for the way that he has changed my life, changed so many in this room where we need to receive more and more and more of that grace and truth. May we do so, Father. And for anybody who needs to experience that for the first time, I pray that you would reveal to them the beautiful, glorious true and gracious life of your son. Pray this in his name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.